Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for this time we have to study your word together, to look at your truth, to understand your person, to see more and more how we are to glorify you, to gain assurance in our lives and in our faith from your word. We thank you for your goodness. We are your people. This is your time. Do with it as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin today by first saying thank you. Uh, I I very much appreciate Pastor Thomas giving me this opportunity to be able to preach and to share from God's Word. I'd also like to thank you as a congregation for trusting his leadership and for allowing me to preach as well and for your being here this holiday weekend. I tell you, truly, it is an honor to be able to stand in this pulpit and preach at this time, given that at this church, we have so many men who are studied, so many men who are equipped, called, and capable of preaching the Word of God. Uh, I so appreciate that aspect, and, and for the fact that we have a pastor who willingly mentors these men and trains them up for ministry. Uh, you need to understand, pastors tend to be greedy with their pulpits. Your pastor is not, and he's been very gracious in how he is ministering and leading people here. It's also an honor for me to be able to participate in an Advent sermon series with these men. During this time, we will be studying specifically, I believe, the Incarnation. Is that correct? So every week there's going to be a sermon on the Incarnation. And, and so I think that's very important. I know as, a, as I was a pastor in the past, I always looked forward to the Christmas season and to finding fresh ways to present those truths. There were times when I would do uh, all of my Christmas messages from, say, the book of Psalms or from the prophets. And I think that it is in similar vein that our series, as we move forward over the next several Sundays, will be looking at scriptures. And some of them will not necessarily be identifiable as a Christmas. We're not having in our, our series any, anyone preaching from Matthew and no one is going to be preaching from Luke. But as today, we are going to be looking at John chapter 1, verse 14, which is not necessarily your, your most popular Christmas text. When you think of the Christmas story, you don't necessarily go, I'm going to go to, to John chapter 1, verse 14. Because in the passage there, we don't read of shepherds, we don't read of angels coming. We do not, we do not read of, of the baby in the manger, and, and we don't talk about cattle and, and sheep. And, and yet, to be very, very honest here, it is my most favorite passage related to Christmas. Because what we have in this is the veil of eternity being brought back so that we can see what it is that the angels longed to look for as they saw the babe and swaddling. We, we see what it was that, that was being magnified and what was being praised. The shepherds as they showed up on the scene weren't ooing and aahing because the baby was cute. That's what we do with everyone's baby. But they were there because it's the Word and flesh, God incarnate. The incarnation is, is, is that doctrine in which we, we talk about how Christ is God in flesh. That in that one person, He is fully God. And fully man, without mixture of those natures. 
There's a theological word for that. And I know here we, we are pretty theologically informed. And so I'm just going to give us a quick primer on theology. We're just going to learn one word, and that is the term. And I'm not going to use it throughout the rest of the sermon because we don't have to use all the big words, but we like a few. In fact, today at lunch, find a way to throw this out. Just during your conversation, just say hypostatic union. As you're, as you're eating, just, just, uh, just go hypostatic union. In fact, I'd like you to right now say hypostatic union together. One, two, three. Now, you don't sound very theologically convinced at this moment. It's okay. I'm not Pastor Thomas. You can loosen up a little bit. I mean, some of y'all weren't sure what to expect. I mean, this is my first sermon in Mississippi, and I'm a Texan, and you know how we are. So let's go ahead and try that again. On the count of three, a hearty hypostatic union. One, two, three. Hypostatic union. Y'all need to be a little bit more fundamentalist Baptist today and a little less reformed. It's it's almost like I'm with PCA people. But but when, when we talk about the hypostatic union, that is the word that describes what takes place in the person of Christ and what we, we have in him is, is one who is fully God, 100% God, 100% man. And that, that is what the glory of Christmas is about. It is what we have in Christ truly is Emmanuel, God with us. So if you will turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, we're going to be working through the text. And I have here, let me grab it for you, on the back of the bulletin, if you haven't noticed, there's a place for sermon notes. And there are blanks for you to be able to fill in. I will try to make sure you get all the answers to the blanks, and that way if there's a quiz later today, you'll be able to pull out and say, hey, I have my answers, I know what's here, I can provide them for you. Uh, You never know, I might randomly ask, even you young men there, I might say, did you get all the answers filled in on the bulletin and and be able to get the answers there? So so we'll have that. So let's, let's look at the text. And then I'm going to talk about what we're responsible to do today, because we have much work to do together today. So, John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we're going to look at this text, and we have some responsibilities to do this. My job is to faithfully preach this text. You have no obligation to believe anything I say outside of what we draw out of Scripture. Scripture is primary. The focus is always on the text and always on God's Word and never on the man who is proclaiming it. This is God's Word. I have no authority outside of what God's Word says. So what I will be doing is I will be drawing out of the text. I will try to connect verse 14 with all of chapter, uh, well, specifically verses 1 through 18, but with all of of chapter 1 of John first, and also with the entire book of John, the Gospel, and then with Scripture. Because when we go and we do our biblical interpretation Our task is not just to read a verse in isolation. Our task is to read the verse in its context and then to study it in light of the the greater greater weight of all of Scripture. And so my task is to show you that I've done my homework and that I'm doing that and that I'm connecting it to to all of, of what is there. Your task, your task is to be noble today. Your task is not to be passive. You're not to sit back. This isn't just my time to preach and to share and to talk. Your task is to look at the text as well and to be like the Bereans who, just because it was the Apostle Paul preaching, didn't say, that must be so. But instead, they 
looked at the scriptures and checked him word for word to see if those things were so. And that's, that's your responsibility today. That's your responsibility anytime there's a man in the pulpit preaching. It's supposed to be interactive. And you're supposed to be checking the scriptures and seeing so. Because that keeps us from preaching our traditions. That keeps us from preaching our opinions. That keeps us from preaching anything less than what God's word says. And that's the task today as we look at this passage. In fact, when we look at this passage, we need to understand that, that there is a purpose to John's gospel. In John 20, verse 30 and 31, this is connecting it to the larger book. It says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's, that's the purpose. It, it is John, everything written in John's gospel is so that you will see that Jesus is the Messiah, that you will see that he is the Christ. And in seeing that he is the Christ, you will have eternal life. So as we look at the text today, connected to the larger purpose of what is, is being written, and then specifically focusing in on this message, the passage that, that I just read, it ends with, we beheld his glory, beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. If you want to know what the ultimate purpose of this message is, it is that you would behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus and that you will worship Him. If, if you are a believer in Christ here today, it is my hope to strengthen your admiration, your love, your affection, to flame up your passions so that you see Christ and you worship Him more. If you are here today and you are not a believer, if you have not committed your life to Christ, the aim and the goal is for you to see clearly in His person, God, and that you will repent and believe because God has clearly communicated Himself in the person of Christ. And that you would see Him today and that God would in His grace and mercy take the scales off your eyes and, and take the stony heart that you have out and give you a heart of flesh so that your heart would beat for Christ and that you repent and that you would bow the knee and that you would join, uh, join us here as we adore Him. Because the Lamb is worthy. Amen? Come on, don't be PCA. Amen? Amen. Amen. He's worthy. Come on, let's be more excited than we were watching the Egg Bowl. Amen? This is my first one to watch this year. I figured I had to go native and just check it out. All right. So... As we look at this message, one of the, the ultimate is that you would see in Christ the Father, that you would see God, and that one application from this message is that you would worship. A secondary application from this message is apologetic in nature. You would see how clearly that God has communicated himself to you. And therefore, apologetically, Apologetics begins with you first. It, it will build up your faith. Any doubts you have that you'll be able to argue with yourself from God's Word looking to Christ for who He is and that it would build you up. Secondly, we do apologetics when we deal with temptation. So it would help us to look at Christ and treasure Him so that we will not 
give in to temptation because we do not defeat temptation by saying no to it, but by saying yes to Christ, who is the glory of God. And thirdly, that when we come, come into contact with those who are not believers, that, that we have confidence in God's word. For it is a two-edged sword. It is sharp. It is sharp. And then we have confidence because we have something that Peter says is more sure than what, what he saw at, at the transfiguration. We have the word of God. And that we will see that from Genesis, Genesis, Revelation, and in the person of Christ throughout all of Scripture, God has been communicating his person. Because we do know what the topic of Scripture is. I'm not going to assume anything. We do know that when we look at Scripture, Scripture itself, there's a way not to read it, and there is a way to read it. I've already talked about context and connecting it, but this is more a matter of perspective. Have you ever watched a child look through a photo album? What do they look for when they look through a photo album? Anyone? Just quick answer, parent. Multiple. There's a lot of parents here. So what, what do children always look for in a photo album? Themselves. As they go page after page of photos, they're not looking at, at you back in the day when you were young, hip, and cool. They're looking for their picture. Some people read Scripture like that. This is about me. They read about, about David and Goliath. Oh, I'm going to take on the giants. It's about me. And they read, and they read like that. No, no, the, the Bible is, is where we look and see God, His person. It's given to us to reveal Him. Don't get me wrong. We're, we're pictured in there too. We're the wretches who need Him. But it is His book showing His glory so that we will see our need and follow him. So as, as, we go, as we move forward, let us, let us look through this lens. So our passage again, I'll begin with that one more time. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, from the Father full of grace and truth. So the first blank, those of you paying attention to the blanks, Behold his glory, God has spoken. God has spoken. Doesn't that seem a little bit odd, the the phrasing there? It, It seems a little bit strange when we look at it. It says, and the word became flesh. We have to we have to do a little Greek today. And and that is because that that word is logos, and logos is translated. Word, but it, but it is a thick theological term and a thick philosophical term. It's not just flat, like just one word on a page. It means, means far more. And so, if you would, I'm going to give you, just stick with me on this. It may become a little tedious, but I'm going to give you some of, of how commentators have dealt with the term logos in, in dealing with the word just because it is crucial to our understanding of what we have in the communication and revelation that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ. First of all, there's the aspect in which the word is, should be considered speech. In fact, this is how Calvin translated the passage. He used the term speech. Commenting on his reason for the use of speech, Calvin states, as to the evangelist calling the Son of God the speech, the simple reason appears to me to be first, because he is the eternal wisdom and will of God, and secondly, because he is the lively image of his purpose. For as speech is said to be among men, the image of the mind So it is not inappropriate to apply this to God 
and to say that he reveals himself to us by his speech. So with, with Calvin, you have, have this idea. Well, when, when we speak, we're showing what's in our mind. And then in giving to us Christ as speech, as the word, God is expressing his very mind. He ties it to the wisdom and will of God. And many of us can think to Proverbs 8, where wisdom is also personified and spoken of as being eternal. James Montgomery Boyce highlights the fact that, that, that the word is God's self-disclosure. Again, continuing with Calvin, showing the mind of God. God showing himself, his self-disclosure. He writes, the first verses of this gospel, including the word, the term word, would refer to a would refer a Jewish person to the first words of the book of Genesis, where we are told, in the beginning God spoke, and all things came into being. In other words, to the Jewish mind, Jesus would somehow be associated with the creative power of God and with the self-disclosure of God in creation. Again, what does it say in Genesis? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let's compare that to John's use of the term word in the very beginning of John chapter 1, where he writes, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Do, do you see what Boyce is getting at? Do you see that, what, well, more importantly, what John is getting at by, by beginning chapter 1, talking about the Logos, talking about creation, and tying Jesus, the Word become flesh, back to creation, such that the very activity of God in creation is through His Word, through the Son. God spoke it, and it was. Picking up on, on, on the aspect of disclosure and communication, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, God spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Before we leave this point about the word being God's self-disclosure, think about it. John's pointer goes back to creation, back to Genesis. And he talks about how creation is God disclosing himself. And then we have in Hebrews echoing very much what we've already read in John. As we look at that, it highlights God has, has revealed himself in many ways through the creation, through the prophets, through their dreams, through his scriptures, and he has revealed himself in his Son. Understand, we don't have to find God God has made himself known. And God is a God of self-disclosure. God has spoken. D.A. Carson refers to the term logos and talks about how it points to God's action. He says, considering how frequently John quotes or alludes to the Old Testament, 
That is the place to begin. There the word, Hebrew Damar, of God is connected with God's powerful activity in creation, as we've looked at, in revelation, and deliverance. If the Lord is said to speak to the prophet Isaiah, elsewhere we read that the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. It was by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. God simply speaks and his powerful word creates. That same word affects deliverance and judgment. James Montgomery Boyce likewise points out, to the Jew a word was something concrete something much closer to what we would call an event or a deed. A word spoken was a deed done. This way of thinking resulted from the Jews' Old Testament theology. What happens when God speaks? The answer is that the thing is instantly done. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Interestingly enough, the word logos was commonly used as a replacement for the divine name by the Jews. So when the Greek Septuagint was being read, instead of saying Yahweh, they would substitute Logos. So John, John is using that terminology that should have been familiar to his hearers to make sure they were certain and that the person of Christ was being connected to Yahweh, the Lord of our, our Lord, our God. The word Logos it's also used in Greek philosophy. Bruce Milne notes, while primarily rooted in, Hebrew back, in this Hebrew background, Logos would also speak to John's Greek readership. Logos had a long history in Greek philosophy, going back at least to Heraclitus, around 500 BC, for whom Logos was the shaping, ordering, and directing principle in the universe. In the first century, Philo, the renowned Jewish teacher in North Africa, who had imbibed much of Greek philosophical outlook, referred regularly to the Logos under a wide variety of images, many of which were personalized the action of the Logos. So you have here, think of it, we're talking about the divine principle ordering the universe, or the divine reason for everything that has come to pass from Greek thought. And John's Greek readers would pick up on that. They would understand that aspect. And John attributes to the Logos in the very beginning verses, creation, ordering the universe, and putting it together. And then he proclaims in a very non-Greek way that this Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a loaded word that John uses with so many facets and so many things to it. But important for us is to see the word logos is the divine second person of the Trinity. Notice it says in the beginning was the word. And this isn't, isn't a coming into being. This is and always having been has been the Word. The Word is eternal. The Word is in a relationship with the Father. It says, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. A.W. Pink commenting on this passage says, and the Word was with God. And this intimates His separate personality and shows his relation to the other persons of the blessed Trinity. 
But how sadly incapacitated are we for meditating upon the relations which exist between the different persons of the Godhead? And God was the Word. Not only was Christ the revealer of God, but He always was and ever remains none other than God Himself. Not only was our Savior the one through whom and by whom the deity expressed himself in audible terms, but he was himself co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. Many commentators pick up on this relationship and this, 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 this interplay between the persons, and they go to Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31, which reads, Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his deeds of old, from everlasting I was installed, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs heavy with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields outside, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became strong, when he set forth the sea its boundaries so that the water would not pass over his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was a daily delight, rejoicing always before him. Rejoicing in the world, his earth, my delight, is in the sons of men. So he is the divine second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal and eternal relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. He is also the creator. As we've read, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, came, nothing came into being that has come into being. And he is our Redeemer. For it says, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we read, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God's communication is certain. He has given us His Word. His Word present in creation. His Word given to the prophets his word that is eternal and that is his person. His word that is self-disclosure. God has given us his word. And God's communication is certain. It is certain. Paul says as much in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made so that they, meaning humanity, are without excuse. Without excuse. Therefore, behold his glory because God has spoken spoken. Worship him who is not silent. Secondly, keeping up with your blanks, behold his glory. God is present. God is present. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. That word there for dwelt in the Greek literally means tabernacled. He tabernacled with us. And, and using that term, John carries all the, all the understanding of the Old Testament tabernacle and places it upon Christ. So what we have when Christ is, is walking the earth, it is God tabernacling with His people. The tabernacle, it was a place of meeting. 
It was the tent of meeting. It's where you would go to be in God's presence. It is, it is a place of worship. It is where you would worship God. It is a place of prayer. It is where you would pray to God. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? He's the tabernacle. He's the one to whom we go to, to go to the Father. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son because He is our tent of meeting. And as the incense was burned and went up as prayers to God, we pray in Jesus' name and our prayers go up to God. Tabernacle. And the tabernacle is also the place of atonement where the sacrifices were made for the sin of the people. Every aspect of Israelite worship and the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. And he's present. That's why John can talk about in 1 John what they saw, what they touched. Because he did behold, the word became flesh. He saw the tabernacle in human flesh. And he understood the significance. That's why Jesus can say, I didn't come to do away with the law. Not one jot, not one tittle. Came to fulfill it. And as the tabernacle of God with us. He did. Think about it, verses 34 through 38 of Exodus 40. Let me read those. Once again, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Now throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. God is not far off. He walked the earth as a person of Christ. The very tabernacle. Very tabernacle with us. He's present. And he has not left us orphans. For he has given us his Holy Spirit. So that he may dwell in us. And may as his people. We worship. And looking at Jesus, we see the God who is present. And we also understand the reality that he is present with us by his Holy Spirit. Behold his glory, full of grace. Full of grace. That is your third point. Full of grace. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace. To see Jesus is to see the very grace of God. For all the reasons we've noted above as him being the tabernacle and, and, and him being our sacrifice, our propitiation, for all those reasons, when we look at the person of Christ, we see the grace of God. John, James Montgomery Boyce, commenting on this, says the first thing that John says was revealed in Jesus Christ was grace, God's grace. Because of this, we know that God is gracious. What is grace? Grace is simply the unmerited favor of God toward humanity. 
The New Schofield Bible says, Grace is the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man. Dr. Harry A. Ironside wrote, Grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but is favor shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. The Bible expresses it when it says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God is gracious toward us, not on the basis of what we have done, but solely because it is his nature to be gracious. As John writes in verse 16, for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That God in his mercy communicated his love and goodness to us by tabernacling with us and achieving our salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus. So understand, as, as we look to Jesus, we should see God's grace. We have a narrative. We have a story. That is what Scripture is. It is the story of God. It is the revelation of God. It is, a, it is, it is Him presenting Himself to us. And in presenting Himself to us through, through chapter after chapter after chapter, His grace, His person, His holiness, His mercy, His love is revealed to us. Our God is communicating to us His grace. And we dare not miss His grace. For our salvation isn't because of anything that we have done. And is nothing that we have deserved. All of us deserve damnation and eternal judgment. But in the tabernacle of God that was walking in Israel, who died on the cross for us, offering himself as our propitiation, theological word, means to turn aside the wrath of God, offering himself as our propitiation, bearing, our, bearing God's wrath, which we deserved. That is grace. In, in the incarnation, in the word becoming flesh, God says strongly, let me show you what grace is. Let me show you the fullness of of my grace. Let me show you my love. Let me demonstrate that to you and see it unto your, unto your salvation and my glory. Find that in the incarnation. But not only grace, he's also full of truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness to this truth. It's, it's interesting when we go into this text because as, as noted by Boyce, there's a lot of allusions the Old Testament and the Gospel of John. You begin with John echoing one of Moses' books, a book in the law, Genesis. And the beginning was the Word. And then you have the introduction of the one who fulfills the office or the role of Elijah as the forerunner. And you, and you have him being a prophet. Jesus is and the Jews were always talking about what the law and the prophets. 
It's in that background that John is making his proclamation as a prophet saying this in verse 6 of the chapter through verse 13. There was a man having been sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to that which was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We have been given light in Christ. John the Baptist testified to this light. He pointed to this light. The idea of life and light go hand in hand in this passage. Life is light. Light brings life. And and it points to Jesus, who is, as the text that will be preached tonight says, the way, the truth, and the life. Notice that way, truth, and life. We have truth in Jesus. Why is that? What does that really mean? Have you thought about it? Just for a moment, think with me. Think with me. Who made the world? Who made the world? That's not rhetorical. I'm just asking. Who made the world? You may speak. Who made the world? God. God made the world. Who causes the world to function as it functions? Who who sustains the world? Whose world is it? Who Who is the Lord and the sovereign over the world? God. So how could there be life or truth in anything that is counter to God? There's a reason it is said to go against Him is to kick against the goats. There is is a, a reason that sin is actually insanity because it is contrary to reality because reality has been ordered by God. That's that's what truth is. Truth isn't just correspondence to, to reality in secular humanist terms. It is corresponding to that which is in the very mind of God. That is truth. And anything else contrary to that is not truth. That should give you confidence in your faith. That should give you confidence in apologetics. It's so interesting how Christians look in their apologetic to be acceptable to the world, to have credibility with the world, to be able to stand on the world's own ground and engage them. Yet the world's own ground is lies. We stand on Him who is the truth. And when we engage Him, engage them, don't let vocabulary, don't let philosophy that you're not informed of be something that intimidates you. You're already standing on the truth. And so if a term is used you don't understand, I tell this to my students all the time, just ask for a definition and see how it lines up with the Word of God. If, if, if anything that is brought out contrary to the Word of God, here's something we know as we engage in evangelism and apologetics. It's not true. So we just stand on the truth. Our argument is not only sound and valid, it's winning. They may not see it, but it's winning.
Because reality is what accords with the mind of God. He is the truth. Sadly, though, we are in a day when people can look straight at Jesus, hear the word of Jesus, and just like Pilate, say, what is truth? What is truth? We have the answer. We have the answer. And the truth is found in the word of God revealed in the person of Christ. Become flesh. So today, what are we to do with the word preached? We are to behold Jesus. We are to behold him. We are to worship him. Because he is God. And to behold him is to behold the Father. This is what we were made for. What is our chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the proper response in looking at Jesus is worship. It's worship. We ought to adore him. Apologetically, the response is to realize even the unbeliever is without excuse because God has revealed himself. Paul tells us they're without an apologetic and they're without excuse. Paul tells us that they know God and that they are suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And we've seen today they know God because God is revealed in the creation. God is revealed in the scriptures. God is revealed in our own humanity. We are made in his image. We cannot look in the mirror without the recognition that there is a God and we belong to him. And we are under judgment if we have not repented. Everyone who is lost should feel that when they look in the mirror. We worship him. And then we engage the world with his message because we have a certain word. God has spoken. Behold his glory. God is present. Behold his glory. God is full of grace. Behold his glory. God is full of truth. Behold his glory. As you celebrate the babe in the manger, behold his glory. As you celebrate he who has come, behold his glory. May we all come and adore him.